close your eyes, my darling, and make your wish. That's right, that's right. Lean in close. Are you wishing for something? Yes, I am. And they both lived happily ever after. <gasps> Queen, where did you send her? To a place where there are no happily ever afters. Welcome to the graveyard slot, where we talk about movies past their prime time. Here, we revisit old favorites with a fresh perspective to see if they deserve more credit or if they should stay buried. I'm Sarah. And I'm Sohini. And today, we're talking about Enchanted and its sequel. Enchanted tells the story of Giselle who is from the magical animated kingdom of Andalasia. To prevent Giselle's marriage to the prince of Andalasia, the evil queen sends Giselle to an alternate universe, also known as New York, where her ideas of one true love and happily ever after are put to the test. The movie was released in 2007. It was directed by Kevin Lima, who also has other Disney movies, including Oliver and Company, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and Tarzan in his repertoire. The music was composed by Alan Menken, who at this point is a household name at Disney, and he's got some classics to his name, including The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, Hercules, and later on would also, after Enchanted, go on to be involved in Tangled and reboots of Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast, and unfortunately, Disenchanted. (laughs) And (laughs) alongside him was composer Stephen Schwartz, who has movies like Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and The Prince of Egypt to his name. So with the new disappointing sequel, Disenchanted, we wanted to go back to the original and see what it is that captured our hearts in the first place. Is it simply nostalgia, coloring our perception, or did Enchanted actually have a competent writer and director? (laughs) Guess we'll just have to see. (laughs) I mean, if public perception tells us anything, it's that it's not just nostalgia coloring our perception because Enchanted happens to have an incredibly high rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I thought it was kind of serendipitous, actually, that Enchanted has 93% and Disenchanted has 39 <laughs> That's amazing. (laughs) They're mirrors of each other in more than just Rotten Tomatoes ratings. And as we've done on this podcast before, we wanted to go through Enchanted and Disenchanted at the same time and see what it was that made one so successful and the other one so not. (laughs) (laughs) If it wasn't clear, we are not exactly pleased with the sequel. (laughs) I don't know that anyone is, so I don't think this is an unpopular opinion, but that's your warning (laughs) to stop (laughs) listening right now. But yeah, like you said, the public was very enchanted by enchanted, you might say. Hmm. Good one. And the first review I've got is from the AV Club, and it reads... Adams' winning performance and the light touch director Kevin Lima, a veteran of animation and life action, brings to scenes not tasked with advancing the plot, all suggests that, silly as they may look once you take it apart, irony-free romantic fantasy, animated or otherwise, still has a place on the big screen. And I completely agree with this review because despite the fact that it's kind of about not poking fun necessarily, but bringing up tropes that usually follow the genre, you know, fairy tales and Disney movies and everything. 
it's not really making fun of it. It's almost like proving that it can still work. Like there is a way to do it in a fresh new way that still entertains audiences and almost like reminds us that we do like this. And there was a reason this is a common trope. Yeah, you're right. And actually that fits really well with the review that I wanted to talk about. Of course, there were plenty of very positive reviews for Enchanted, especially praising Amy Adams's performance. But the one that caught my eye was from Slant Magazine, and it reads, Eventually peddles the same old ass-backwards messages, equating physical beauty with goodness and positing that a woman's greatest dream is that a hunk will materialize out of thin air and make her a contended homemaker and wife. Where are they even getting that? I don't know. <laughs> and actually, another one that I wanted to read in conjunction with this one is from Chicago Reader. And it says, Disney goes meta in this witty, exuberant musical comedy whose parody and nostalgia serve a sweet and affecting romance. And the word I want to focus on is exuberant because the point of Enchanted is that it's taking fairy tale tropes that we're all really familiar with and it's leaning into them and it's subverting them by portraying them in an exaggerated way to both make fun of those tropes, but also, as you said, to show that they can hold up. We have certain expectations when we're watching a fairy tale. So I don't think it would work if... This movie also didn't follow that to some extent, but the way that it does it is so new and so smart that it doesn't really make sense to say that it falls into the same traps as the older stories might. Yeah, what stood out to me in those reviews is the part where they were like, it's still saying like women can only be valued members of society if they're pretty or if they have a hunk of a man or whatever <laughs> <laughs> and i think this is representative of a bigger issue for one the movie doesn't posit that for two the movie is showing a character who would like a hunk of a man they at no point suggest that this is of higher moral value than any other desire for a woman, no less. Yeah. The romance in Enchanted serves a point for Giselle to grow as a character. It's exploring themes of one true love and identity and relationships. It's just a device. Yeah, but also like even if it is the point, at no point in the movie were they like, and everyone should be like this. It just so happens that we're following Giselle, who is mid-romance. <laughs> so Disenchanted, the sequel to Enchanted released in 2002, picks up 10 years after the events of the first movie. And by now, Giselle is slightly disillusioned about her happily ever after. In an effort to build a fairy tale life, she and her family move to a new town where they get entangled in some magic that threatens to put an end to their lives as they know it. This movie was directed by Adam Shankman, who has movies like A Walk to Remember, Hairspray, and Hocus Pocus 2 in his filmography. Boo! <laughs> also a bad movie, I've heard. And as I mentioned earlier, Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz returned for this movie to do the music again. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like we said, most people don't seem to like it. You know, actually, there were surprisingly a lot of good reviews of Disenchanted, yeah. critic reviews at least, and I was upset and insulted and I'd like to sue. <laughs> <laughs> but 
This is actually an excerpt that I took from a mostly positive review, but... You picked out the one negative part. (laughs) I did. That is exactly what I did. And it's from Los Angeles Times, and it reads, Disenchanted lacks its predecessor's charming ease. The plot is overcomplicated, relying too much on detailed explanations of how spells work, and the premise offers an ungainly mix of relatable disappointments and outsized dilemmas, frequently involving cartoonish villainy. Not only do I agree with every part of that, I feel like it's kind of nailed the main root of the problem. Yeah, I agree with it completely as well. I'm a bit confused as to how this was a positive review. I think this represents what's happening also because a lot of people are aware of like the issues even within their positive reviews, but they're like more forgiving of it. And I'm like, what, did Amy Adams take you out for dinner? Come on. How much are you getting paid? (laughs) To be fair, if Amy Adams takes me out to dinner, I will say anything she wants me to do. (laughs) In our next episode, you're retracting everything you said in this episode. (laughs) I can only hope because that would mean that Amy Adams has called me up. We'll tweet her. I'll send her a message by Pigeon. (laughs) The one that I found was from Independent UK and it says, Where's the satire? Where's the subversion? Sometimes happily ever after isn't a cop-out or an outdated romantic notion that marriage solves everything. Sometimes it's just the best time to stop the story. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when the follow-up is this bullshit then yeah i agree (laughs) yeah and the thing is in the first movie they already had the walking off into the sunset happily ever after in the beginning of the movie and then they subverted that and we got a more realistic and a more balanced take on that trope by the end of the first movie you're right that was the whole fucking point that there was a place without a happily ever after that's what they called new york and she chooses to be there and that that's we yes <laughs> like this enchanted presents this idea that Giselle finds out that happily ever after is imperfect and i'm like that was enchanted <laughs> i think that's part of the problem with the second movie I don't think it has a clear idea what its message is and what its focus is because there are so many different aspects they're trying to explore. On one hand, there's Giselle who was framed in the trailer as the villain of the movie and then there's also another secondary villain. There's just too much going on and I don't think the movie had a focused enough direction. Well, let's just get into it. I mean, we're already ragging on it. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it officially. We will be discussing Enchanted chronologically, and we open the first act on a fairy tale book, and we start in the animated world of Andalasia. You know what struck me immediately is that they actually start with the queen's motive, with the villain's motive. And just right off the bat, that's already so much clearer than Disenchanted. You're right. There's a very clear motivation driving the story. It reminds me of The Princess and the Pauper, actually, where we don't start off with our main characters, but we start off with the problem. And so you have this very distinct sense of purpose. There's a reason the story is happening and the way it's going the way it is, which definitely (laughs) is missing in Disenchanted. I just really love how we're immediately submerged into the fairy tale world. I love the way that we go into it feeling like it's such a traditional fairy tale and then we have our expectations subverted later on. 
especially I think if people were going into this movie blind the way I did, because when I first saw this movie, I had no idea what it was about. I just started watching it thinking it was an animated movie. And when she popped up in New York, it was such a fun surprise. That's amazing. I wish I had that experience, actually. Did you know it was going to be a mix of animation and live action before you saw it? I saw it in theaters having anticipated seeing it. So I must have known what it was about. I can't remember it that well. Yeah, the poster is like real people. (laughs) So you must have. Yeah, (laughs) true. You know what else is very clear from the start is Giselle's dream Giselle's motivation we kick off with her dream of wanting a one true love and it's conveyed to us through the first musical number of this movie true love's kiss and I adore this song I love for one that it's a conversation between her and her friends for these woodland creatures and I also love specifically that they are woodland creatures because that's such a staple of the classic fairy tale right Mm -hmm. and in the musical number they are playing around with their surroundings which is like one of my favorite things in a musical number like the things that they're singing about has to do with the environment because they're trying to construct the perfect prince and they're missing a pair of lips so they're trying to pick out you know the right ones and they settle on the worst one possible which is a caterpillar and i'm like she's supposed to kiss that that is gross (laughs) They're just making do with what they have. Also, you know what I like? There's a reason that she has that statue. It's a dress form. And she has a dress form because she makes her own clothes. Mm. And this is a big part of her character. And it's present from the very, very beginning. Oh, you're right. That's great. Yeah, I also really like that they're kind of building her ideal one true love out of scrap parts. (laughs) I especially like the part where some of her friends find two gems to serve as the eyes and Giselle holds them up to her own eyes and they get all distorted. And I think it kind of shows her own distorted view of love. And I also really like how this is not just a duet between her and her friends, but also that it will go on to be a duet between her and Prince Edward, and it will become a refrain that reoccurs throughout the movie until it's only Edward singing it by the end and she's not joining in anymore. It's a great theme. Yeah, it's a great theme and it's a great way of showing her character development. It's also a great shorthand for where they are. The language that they speak in, the worlds that they live in, and specifically how they see the world. There's also potentially a bit of foreshadowing because before the caterpillar crawls out of it, Giselle actually holds up a bitten apple to the prince's face and it sort of mirrors when Robert picks up Giselle's bitten apple and kisses her in the climax. Yeah, oh my god, that's amazing. But Giselle never actually ends up finding the perfect item to serve as the lips on her makeshift man. And I think that's also some effective symbolism because it kind of shows that she's missing a key part in her fantasy. There's a line in True Love's Kiss that I actually really like when the prince and Giselle are singing together where they say, And in years to come we'll reminisce how we came to love and grew and grew love since first we knew love through True Love's Kiss. And I do like this idea that even though she does have this dream about you know, true love's kiss, and we see her quote-unquote fall (laughs) in love with the prince and get married within a day, she does have an awareness, and so does Edward for that matter, that love is something that grows, that you can grow into it. 
I think it speaks to just the world that they're living in. It's not necessarily that they believe this. I mean, they do believe it, but like, it's also just like conventions, you know? Yeah. But speaking of the prince, as I said, he does end up seeing this duet with Giselle. And this is because he was troll hunting in the area with Nathaniel, the queen's henchman. He hears Giselle singing and runs to her and ends up saving her from the troll. Well, he doesn't do much. Catching her <laughs> when she falls. If he hadn't been there, she would have gone splat and died immediately. True, I suppose. <laughs> he saved her by accident. And I thought it was such a fun detail that Prince Edward's horse is called Destiny. Oh. It's like Destiny literally has them riding off into the sunset. But of course, what is usually the ending of these kinds of movies ends up being the beginning for this one. They ride off into the sunset and the next day is the wedding and Giselle is kind of running late and her animal friends are helping her prepare and the way they're dropping things on her and draping the ribbon around her, it kind of reminded me of the way she was dressing up the mannequin earlier. It's sort of like she herself is not real either in the sense that she hasn't really realized her identity yet. Yeah, or just even like she has to be like spruced up to become this person who will be marrying Edward instead of just being herself. I mean, I get it. It's a wedding, obviously, you want to get dressed up. <laughs> but because they put such a point on literally constructing her dress still on the steps of the palace, I think says a lot. Yeah, and I think what feeds into what I was saying as well is the dialogue in the scene. She keeps not finishing her sentences. She's like, me and Edward, <laughs> Edward and I. And it's almost like she doesn't know what's going to happen next. I mean, they have the grow in love part, but practically, what does that mean? I don't think either of them know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But on her way to the altar, she is dragged away by an old hag, you might say. <laughs> to this well where she's told that it'll grant all your wishes but she gets pushed into it because surprise surprise the old woman was the queen and the queen doesn't want her to marry edward and take the throne so she sends giselle to in her words a place where there are no happily ever afters i absolutely love that i love that Immediately, we are presented with this idea that we're supposed to be exploring, namely the complexity of happiness and exactly what makes this life wonderful and lets you be human. How is Disenchanted suddenly like now we are exploring the opposite of Happily Ever Afters? And I'm like, that was Enchanted! Did you not watch the movie? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really good, you should! <laughs> Yeah, agree with everything you said. And I think the characters in the human world are also manifestations of this black and white thinking. In one world, it's supposed to be like a utopia, while real life, it's like there are no happily ever afters. Dreams don't come true. Very extreme viewpoint that's represented by the love interest, Robert. And I think that's what makes Robert and Giselle's dynamic so interesting because through each other they get to understand the flaws in their perceptions and it works really well even though they're representing these very black and white stances the characters themselves never feel flat there's so much complexity and nuance 
in their depiction. Definitely. And I think that's exactly what was missing in Disenchanted. Mainly the part where you talked about Robert and Giselle informing each other's characters because in Disenchanted, they don't share the screen. <laughs> she literally talks to Pip in that movie more than she talks to her own husband. <laughs> I don't know how they took these wonderfully nuanced characters and made them so flat and boring and on top of that the new characters that they introduce have no personalities whatsoever there are so many filler characters basically like if you took them out of the story it would make no difference might actually make the story better <laughs> <laughs> for sure and actually this is a perfect time to bring this up we establish in enchanted that this is the real world and so these are real humans. But one of the big mistakes that they made is that when they go to Monroeville, which is basically a suburb that looks like a fairy tale for some reason, we get no explanation why. It's like they go into a fairy tale world where everyone's black and white. But like they have this whole thing where like Giselle basically turns the town into an actual fairy tale. So I'm like, why would you start with the town already being a fairy tale? You should have just started with like them being real humans and then Giselle makes the wish and then the people slowly start regressing and she is reminded at once what it is that she left behind because it's in her past, right, Andalasia? And she had started looking at it with rose-colored glasses. This is a Giselle that is 15 years removed from having chosen actively to leave Andalasia and live in the real world because she knows what value lies here. And slowly she has either forgotten or she has built up this idea of Andalasia as a place where everything was perfect and now she's seeking that again in her life and that's why she would like to go back to quote-unquote a fairy tale world. You captured basically what is my biggest problem with Disenchanted. The whole point of the first movie was the juxtaposition between the fairy tale world and reality and the interesting parts were the friction between the two and here it's too similar already so when that huge change happens it's not really apparent it i think lessens the impact and there's no tropes to play on anymore it's just a straightforward fairy tale world basically and one of the things actually that i really hate and I think Amy Adams actually saves it at some points but the first morning where everyone's suddenly fairytale characters it's like she's pleased that suddenly all Morgan wants to do is like clean and Robert is trying to be what like a knight or whatever but with how sudden it is in the movie and how everything is already instantly a fairy tale i don't think that she would be pleased like her problem with morgan isn't that she doesn't like who morgan has become it's about their relationship and same goes with robert it's not about who he is as a person it's not like she wishes robert was somebody who goes out and hunts trolls the way edward did it's that their lives have change throughout the years you know the circumstances have changed and so suddenly being confronted by these strangers in her house that have taken the bodies of her loved ones i think would be traumatizing and she would not be pleased and there are moments where like morgan would say something weird and amy adams plays it really well actually where she's like that's not quite right i do see hints of that but i think even with that it's still criminal to me that she is pleased at all yeah i think this is where the movie's lack of focus shines through again 
they don't know what the conflict is, I think. The setup is that Morgan doesn't quite feel like she's a quote, real daughter of Andalasia the same way her half-sister is. But then they don't hone in on that. It's all very messy. There's also this disagreement they have before she makes the wish where Morgan says something like, you're not my mother, you're just my stepmother. And even that felt so out of place to me because up until that point, she and Giselle had had a perfectly good relationship. <laughs> Actually, something that I do want to talk about, since we're getting to that part of Disenchanted, I was quite struck by the conversation that Giselle and Robert had before she makes the wish. Basically, a bunch of things are going wrong with their move and things are going badly with Morgan. She's very unhappy. And Giselle is kind of at the end of her rope and she asks Robert, are you happy here? And Robert looks around and like he can't even answer it. And then Giselle asks, when was the last time you felt happy? I like that conversation. I like that they have the conversation. It feels like a real conversation that spouses would have in the privacy of their own home. And because the first one, you know, Enchanted, like I said, is kind of exploring the ups and downs of joy and what makes it valuable. I like that in Disenchanted, at one point, it seems <laughs> like they are going to be exploring that once more, but in a different way. But Robert's dissatisfaction was just, I think in that conversation portrayed quite well. Not in the rest of the movie, but in that conversation. And so is Giselle's distress over it. Yeah, it makes sense for them to run into these kinds of issues. It fits really well with the phase that they're at in their lives. It's just that it doesn't fit with the concept of the movie, at least in terms of what they promised us, which is what happens when the heroine becomes the villain. These very interesting themes that they initially bring up, they don't really come into fruition throughout the movie. They don't really build on them. It ends up going in a complete different direction. Yeah. But you know what? We're getting a little mean. Off track. So. Just like disenchanted. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to the movie that we do love, Enchanted where we finally see Giselle as a human person, played by Amy Adams, and she wakes up over slash under a manhole cover. Gravity is non-existent. Giselle is peering through the manhole cover, and it looks like she's peering down, but really she's looking up, and it's like everything has turned upside down both figuratively and literally, and the lines between these two realities have blurred. Yeah, I love this introduction to New York, especially the whispers of the sound of New York while Giselle is still underground. And when she actually opens the manhole cover, she's in the middle of Times Square and uh, immediately causes car wrecks and ruins some guy's stand and is swept away by the crowd of people. And actually, something that stood out to me is that she calls out for Edward, and it's this depiction of quote-unquote classic princesses and fairy tales where no matter the problem, no matter what she's capable of, she always has to like yell out for her love interest. Her depiction also is very childlike and that's also like a child's instinct. You call out to your the your guardian. What I really liked is that 
she gets swept away in the middle of the crowd and her huge dress basically becomes an impediment to her and that's a physical way of showing the fact that she obviously doesn't fit in in this world and neither do her grandiose ideals it just isn't realistic in this cynical world that she's been shoved in and basically she's ushered into the subway station and she emerges from the other side later on and i really like the way the camera moves from the subway entrance to the exit to indicate passage of time i thought that was really clever and i couldn't find a comparison like this for the second movie and i mean i watched that thing twice for this episode <laughs> and it's two times too much <laughs> yeah Everything felt so generic. Yeah, my biggest problem with Disenchanted is the direction. The camera work, for one, doesn't even attempt to try to tell a story. Like, camera work isn't just, like, capturing the story that is being told by the script. It is telling the story. And they do stuff that would, in theory, is, like, cool or whatever. Like, they do an interesting thing where, like, the second villain who is played by Maya Rudolph's like in the middle and then her cronies are like on either side it's like this shot that is supposed to be striking but the shots that are meant to be striking are all cliches so Giselle is having a tough time in New York but in the meantime we are introduced to Robert yeah I love that our introduction to him <laughs> is his job because what? no it's just funny we were about to witness a beautiful wedding and then she's shoved into new york and the first thing we see is a divorce yeah exactly he's a divorce lawyer we see the world that he's coming from and the perspective that he's coming from especially because he has a conversation following it with his assistant where he basically will learn what his thoughts are on romantic relationships he's very realistic and practical and his stance is that true love is not dependable it's not something you can rely on it's not an unbreakable thing which is fair enough <laughs> but what i actually find especially interesting is his relationship with morgan we learn that he has a daughter a young daughter and he's trying to break the news to her that he's about to propose to his partner and he tries to soften the blow by like giving her a book <laughs> about yeah. like historical women he says he knows morgan wanted like a fairy tale book of some kind but he got her this instead so like even in the most frivolous senses he really doesn't subscribe to the whole fairy tale thing the thing that strikes me is that when he tells Morgan about the engagement, she isn't ecstatic about it, which made me wonder, honestly, like, is he not taking into account her feelings about this? I know Morgan doesn't hate Nancy, but it doesn't sound like she's happy about the engagement. I don't think it's necessarily Nancy that she has reservations about it's more about the idea of having a stepmother because <laughs> we know she likes fairy tales and so she probably she has a very set idea of what it means to have a stepmother and what struck me is that when Robert tells her Morgan's immediate reaction is the physical space Nancy's gonna take up because she seems immediately relieved when he reassures her that she <laughs> that she won't have to give up her room 
And I, I suppose that stands as a symbol for her not having to give up the importance she has in this family and for her dad, even though she might not know it yet, because someone else has like authority over her now. Yeah, and it's present also in the way that he tells her, it's not like she'll try to be your mother, which really struck me also, because at the very least, it tells us the expectations that Robert has for his upcoming marriage. Yeah, and after we learn about Morgan's mother later on, it kind of makes sense why he would say that. It's not only him who has been hurt by Morgan's mother leaving, it was also Morgan, and in a way it's that he's trying to protect Morgan from the same kind of hurt. It's like he's trying to reassure her that she really won't have anything to do with you, so that if things do go downhill, you will still be fine. You know, I think that speaks less of his relationship with Morgan than it does about his relationship with Nancy. I think it's more his perception of his relationship with Nancy. His perception of romance in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. But our two main characters finally cross paths because Giselle found a billboard of a princess castle and she thinks it's a real castle and she climbs up onto the billboard and Giselle ends up falling off the billboard and Robert doesn't quite catch her. He breaks she her fall. fall. <laughs> yeah, she falls <laughs> But this is a thing I really adore, is that their first point of connection is when Robert offhandedly and almost sarcastically says, welcome to New York, but Giselle takes it sincerely. It kind of is a perfect representation for what they do to each other. You know, Robert is too much of a cynic and Giselle is too trusting, you might say. But it's this idea that when they mesh, suddenly... Robert would say some stupid sarcastic thing and Giselle is taking it to heart. And that makes Robert be more aware of what it is he's actually saying and what it is he's putting out into the world. But you know, but also for Giselle, she's learning from Robert and how not everything is as it seems and as presented on the surface. And he's actively teaching her. He's actively looking out for her in that way, which makes them such a great balanced out couple. I also really like how she meets Edward and Robert the exact same way. She just topples <laughs> on top of them. But of course, in New York, it's a lot more realistic. <laughs> Instead of her just dropping onto his lap, it's a, a little bit more bone-crushing <laughs> than that. <laughs> Robert lets Giselle tag along to their apartment so that she can make a phone call. <laughs> She kind of seems to be in her own world trying to tell Morgan everything that she's been through and the horrible day that she's had. And one thing she says here is, true love's kiss is the most powerful thing in the world. And while I was watching the second movie, there was a similar line where they introduce the power of memories. They say memories are the most powerful magic of all. I just want to talk about the difference in these two lines. The first one came up so naturally in the conversation. It plays on a well-established trope and coming out of Giselle's mouth, it fits in with her character and is something that we would expect her to say. Whereas the memories line, there's nothing tying it to the world of fairy tales. I think Giselle is the one who says it. And this is a problem I think other people have also pointed out. But it's like 
with Giselle's character, you can't tell that she's been living in the human world for 10 to 15 years. This coming out of her mouth at such a random point felt like one more idealistic cliche that she would have grown out of at this point. And also, it kind of comes up out of nowhere. This whole memory theme is tied to this memory tree in Andalasia, and this was never brought up in Enchanted. They literally, in the second movie, go to Giselle's treehouse, and right behind it is this supposed magic memory tree. But it's like, you can't just add stuff. <laughs> they should have just had the treehouse as the memory place that would have been better it's just like it's insulting to the first movie or at least it's insulting to me i'm insulted <laughs> you're right like what is that the power of memories what what fairy tales are from like true love's kiss everybody knows that the power of memories like shut up <laughs> it also makes the climax so contrived because when morgan is in andalasia and she's talking about bringing the memory tree back it just felt like they were trying so hard to make it make sense compared to the way they used such a well-known trope in Enchanted of True Love's Kiss. It just felt so much more labored. It's like they're trying to come up with their own mythology, but it doesn't make any sense. The fact that they are unable to properly follow the timeline of these characters and their development. It's actually a big problem that I have with the second movie. Like you said, Giselle should not be as wide-eyed and naive as she seems to be in Disenchanted. One of the times is when there's this really awful <laughs> fumbling of her relationship with Morgan where Nancy and Edward show up and they talk about the real daughter of Annalise or whatever and it's clear that Morgan is slighted by this and it's like it's an issue that 10 years on I feel like Giselle wouldn't fumble as badly like I feel like this is something that they would have become comfortable with and have worked on and Morgan should not still be wondering if she's not considered Giselle's real daughter it's a weird thing to suddenly pop up 10 years later, especially with the way their relationship is built in Enchanted. You know, Enchanted happened in 2007 and now we're coming back to it in 2022. We should be jumping in and suddenly we see that Giselle is like a pro <laughs> at this, you know, like she's swiping her Metro card, she's getting on and off the subway, but she's doing it all in a very Giselle way. So it's like laying on that trope of the princess skipping down the dirt road through a forest. And she's doing exactly that, but she's doing it through the streets of New York. <laughs> like that would have been amazing. Yeah. So show Giselle navigating real life, navigating New York. Like that's the point or like that would be the point of going back to a world, to a franchise 10 years later. It would have been so much better because it would have been honoring the character's development up until this point. When you were talking about the way Morgan and Giselle's relationship was built in the first movie, one of the moments where they become closer is when they realize that neither of them grew up spending time with their mothers. And so the second movie's whole spiel about Giselle being so absorbed in celebrating her second daughter that she's forgetting about Morgan, it feels so unlike her. I feel like 
Giselle would never do that. I think they fail for one to show that Giselle did that. I don't think Giselle did, but they act as if Giselle did. And I think the issue with Morgan is like the baby's presence is bringing to light the difference between her and the baby. And like you said, especially with Giselle, that would be a stupid problem <laughs> because they have both actively chosen to be each other's family. And that's like the foundation of their relationship. And the worst part is that they set it all up and then they don't follow through with it. Yeah. The way it was going, I thought Morgan would be the one to make some kind of wish with that wand. There's like a whole musical number where she's standing off to the side, feeling quite neglected, I assume. But then it never comes up again. And then at the end of the movie, Giselle's like... You are a real daughter of Andalusia, the end. Yeah, and it's like, if you want to start with the slight against Morgan, and you want to end with fixing it by saying that you are a real daughter of Andalusia, then the middle should be exploring that. So it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Giselle ends up staying at the apartment, but someone else has entered the chat. <laughs> Edward has followed Giselle into New York, and he has this larger-than-life entrance. Just the city of New York is so alive and basically a character in this movie. And that's sorely lacking in Disenchanted. I mean, Monroeville is a lacking character. <laughs> yeah. I can think of so many background characters in Enchanted who have so much personality that they're really memorable. I'm thinking of the bus driver or the lady inside the bus that Edward almost stabs because he thinks the bus <laughs> is a giant monster. They're so charming and they feel like real people, whereas in Disenchanted, forget about the background characters. We see characters for prolonged amounts of time on screen, yet they still don't have any personality. They're so boring. It's such a boring movie. And I mean, it looks so colorful and vibrant. You would think it's teeming with personality, but the setting is so boring. It's so bad. You know, let's cheer up. <laughs> yeah. Let's sing a little happy working song, you might say. <laughs> because Giselle wakes up in the apartment and she said, everything is so messy. So, you know, she is a Disney princess after all. She has to dust and clean and she calls her animal friends. But this is New York, so they are rats and cockroaches and gnats. And it is nasty. <laughs> but yeah, this is a, a play on the song from Snow White. Whistle while you work. There we go. Giselle also seems taken aback. She doesn't take it in stride immediately that she's suddenly surrounded yeah. by vermin. It's like another reality check for her. And actually, one of the lines in the song is, we'll keep singing without fail, otherwise we'd spoil it. And then she goes back into what she's doing. It's almost like the trope is forcing you to move forward, whether the conditions are perfect or not. Yeah. And actually, I also love the break in that pretense, which is the bridge. She talks about her vulnerabilities, that she feels uncomfortable here. There's always such a great balance of the fantastical and the realistic and the more over-the-top elements in the animated characters versus their more complex emotions. One small example is at the end of the song when one of the pigeons eats a cockroach. Another reality check. Yeah, it snaps you back to reality and reminds you what it's like in real life. It's a pigeon-eat-cockroach world out there. <laughs> 
Giselle is quite pleased that everything's clean and tidy. Well, not clean, but tidy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Robert and Morgan are less so because they wake up and see that their apartment is covered in insects and rats. And, you know, they find Giselle is in the shower and asks she leaves the shower she basically trips on robert and falls on him just in time for nancy to arrive and see them and basically she thinks that robert cheated on her which is so reasonable because that it looked so bad (laughs) if i were nancy i would never i would never believe him fair enough i couldn't blame you but actually what i really like is that it's not that she just trips it's because she's starting up that song again and it prompts one of the pigeons to fly in robert's face and so it's it's her fairy tale antics once again causing trouble for her and for robert this time in the real world with this development you know who else is around who (laughs) (laughs) the queen laments that edward has gone after giselle and basically tricks nathaniel into volunteering to go after him and i really like this detail that the queen uses bodies of water to communicate it seems like that's part of her power to use bodies of water because now that i think about it the well is a body of water and that's what she uses to transport people into new york and she's basically facetiming nathaniel (laughs) 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 in a kitchen at some restaurant and she even sends items through the boiling pot that she's in she sends three poisoned apples, which Nathaniel needs to use to basically kill Giselle. A detail I like is the way this conversation ends, which is that the queen gets scooped away. <laughs> Someone's soup probably tasted really bad that day. <laughs> what I really liked in this scene was the transition of the apples from animated to real and back and forth as both Nathaniel and the evil queen interact with them. With water being what separates them, the two worlds seem so close to each other, which makes the contrast all the more apparent. I think this is also something that Disenchanted misunderstood. It's not just like we wanted fairy tale. The cool thing about Enchanted is that it's also fairy tale in real life, but animated and live action plays into that. We didn't really get this fun thing in disenchanted like we got some scenes in animated but it doesn't do anything for the story it's not highlighting the themes that they were trying to explore you know yeah it's just there because in the first movie andalasia was animated so they just did it again yeah which i mean we're obviously we're not saying that andalasia shouldn't have been animated of course it served a purpose is what you're saying yes (laughs) that's what they're missing is intention the same kind of intention yeah. they had in the first movie well they do have one you know milk money out of people of course how could i have missed that <laughs> anyway not to get bogged down again let's pick it back <laughs> up <laughs> robert really needs to send giselle on her way but he, you know he can't just send her off so he takes her to work so that his assistant can help but what happens is that giselle encounters Robert's clients. She gets a particularly big reality check because she learns about divorce. It basically goes against everything she knows. This is basically her real first time contending with the idea that love can end. I really like how as we dive into New York and real life, we get to learn more types of love. We learn that Nathaniel's love for the queen is not as it seems and it is a whole other beast entirely. 
We learn that people get divorced. We learn that people leave their partners and kids. And there are also relationships that endure with problems. So I actually don't know how I feel about the clients ending up back together again at the end. They're turning both Giselle and Robert's worlds upside down. <laughs> She's like, divorces happen. And he's like, divorces get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> but since they can't seem to find Andalasia, Robert decides to just send Giselle off at Central Park. He gives her money and sends her on her way. And Robert explains why he feels the need to do this. And she understands. But she also immediately gives away the money. <laughs> and Robert sees and he gives in and catches up to her and tries to help her again. Yeah, and this is where they take a walk through the park. They get to know each other a bit more. And we get the next musical number. That's how you know. I actually really loved the conversation leading up to the song. They basically lay out their own points of view. And they do such a good job of comparing these two extremes. The characters aren't at odds during this conversation. They're kind of just feeling each other out. And it's a really interesting conversation to have between them. I really like how they represent such opposite stances, but you can see them slowly opening each other's eyes to a different reality. And I want to compare this development in their relationship to a romantic relationship in Disenchanted between Morgan and Maya Rudolph's character's son, Tyson. The main difference is that Giselle and Robert have a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand why they even try to shoehorn Morgan and Tyson. I think it's because they couldn't find any other satisfying conclusion to Morgan's problem, which is that she was worried about fitting in, in this new town, in this new school. And they're like, what better way than to give her a boyfriend? <laughs> then she's got a reason to stick around. You can tell why Giselle and Robert fall for each other in the course of the movie. They get to know each other. They form a bond. Whereas every time Morgan and Tyson are talking, it's such generic conversation. I don't even know what they're saying half the time. They don't know anything about each other. It's just like they're together because they have to be together as a female lead and a male love interest. Also, I would like to emphasize that they have, like, two conversations. Literally. Also, like, even their meeting is so cliche. Like, ooh, I dropped my books. Ooh, I'll pick it up to you. Also, like... <laughs> <laughs> like, they dropped their books. They can pick it up. Who is out here helping people with their books? What is this? Chivalry. Have you ever helped... Have I ever helped someone pick up their books? I'd be married by now if I had... <laughs> I feel like this only works if Morgan is an old lady. Like, of course I would help. Because there's a reason why I need to help. Because she can't bend over. There, we found the critical plot hole. What were we talking? We were in Central Park. About to talk about That's How You Know. Yeah, I love the song so much. 
I also love that this movie not only plays with fairy tale tropes, but also musical tropes. There's the shot of Giselle running up the hill as she belts and the camera like goes up with her. Very sound of music. Yes, exactly. But yeah, and there are so many instances of that throughout the movie where it's playing around with musical tropes, but also when she's rowing the boat, or rather, Robert is rowing the boat, <laughs> and it's supposed to be like the Little Mermaid, and just to, you know, dump on Disenchanted <laughs> Again, but the references in this movie actually make sense, whereas Disenchanted have like 99 references that make no sense and only bog down the movie. And if you are like focusing on details, those details have to amount to something. Like there's so many details on New York and its people and that's because it is to build up the character of New York. Whereas in Disenchanted, it doesn't do that. All it does is pat itself on the back, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. That's probably one of the contributors to the very slow pace of the movie as well. Actually, what stood out more to me is that it more strips the movie of character because it's too busy, like, mushing up whatever their other IP is. Yeah, and actually, I think that applies to the music as well. That's How You Know has such a distinct sound, and actually each song has its own character. Whereas in Disenchanted, as you said, all these references leech the movie of any character. And I watched this video on Disenchanted on YouTube by Modern Girls. And one thing she said that struck me is one of the songs in the movie sampling multiple older Disney songs, including Let It Go. This influence of Let It Go in particular was so apparent. Yeah, and jarring. Yeah, and I wasn't at all surprised to hear that it had also sampled these other Disney songs. And it's like, it's made up entirely out of secondhand parts. So it doesn't have anything of its own. It doesn't have anything that makes it stand out. And I think all the songs, to one degree or another, suffer from this problem. The only distinct one to me was the one that Giselle and Malvina, Maya Rudolph's character, sing. Just because at least it has a distinct personality because of the brass instruments, but the others, you could pluck them out of any generic, vaguely fairy tale story and you wouldn't be able to tell that this is from Disenchanted. No, that's a great point and a big problem I have with Disenchanted as well. The song is already so bad, but I'm actually angry that they had the gall to reference Cinderella's dress transformation in that moment. It made me so angry because it's nowhere near as iconic and it cheapened the actual thing for me. On one hand, they're so self-congratulatory about their previous successes with Let It Go, etc. that they can't help but make it front and center. But it's also almost like they're not confident enough for this movie to stand on its own without the legacy of not only Enchanted, but everything that's come before and after it. They're making it too reliant on everything else, and in the process, they just strip it of any kind of character and originality, exactly. But that's how you know, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Giselle ends up singing basically with the whole park. And Edward is there and he hears her from afar. And then he starts singing True Love's Kiss. And, you know, he gets cut off because he gets run over by cyclists. <laughs> but I like that even this early on, they are already starting to grow apart. He's still stuck in True Love's Kiss while Giselle has grown into more of a human and a new person. And she's already saying that's how you know. 
not only is that a different song, but that's how you know to actually add on to your point about Disenchanted. It's so distinctly New York as well. It has this percussion and it's playing with like the common genres that you would hear on the streets of New York and the people of New York. I heard that they wanted to distinguish True Love's Kiss from the songs we hear later on in the movie as well. So they had Amy Adams initially sing it in an operetta style. True Love's Kiss is the song that's supposed to signify Andalasia. It's fit for animation. It's fit for that tradition. And that's how you know it's contemporary. It's a different genre. Also, since we are talking about music, I think it would have been really fun to have a reprise of True Love's Kiss, but evil this time. In Disenchanted, yes. Yeah, and that could still be a running thread and maybe this time we can see how that thread becomes distorted as Giselle's intentions are slowly corrupted because of her wish. It would have been really cool if Giselle turns into an evil stepmother and then how she infects other people is through kisses. She kisses Robert and then he becomes a fairy tale cartoonish character. She kisses Morgan like on her forehead or whatever. And then she kisses her baby on her cheek and she blows a kiss to Malvina. You said before something about Giselle seeing a gradual change in the people around her. This also ties into that. If she had been the one slowly infecting everybody. What were we talking about? That's how you know still. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's how you know is the big number. And it actually has so many little things that will come back later. Robert, for one, expresses his unwillingness to sing and dance. You know, he hasn't fully bought into this yet. And he's a straight man through all of this. But it's a progression that we see with his character. I love this line from the song. She says, Well, does he take you out dancing just so he can hold you close? Dedicate a song with words meant just for you. Because that's what ends up happening with Robert later. When they end up getting together, they are dancing close. And the song is so close. And he dedicates the words of the song to her. But actually, the lyrics following this is, He'll find his own way to tell you with the little things he'll do. That's how you know. And I like that. Because she starts off the song with very specific instructions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then ends it with what matters is that he'll do it in his way although she does immediately negate that because she quote-unquote helps by sending nancy flowers using doves on behalf of robert and that's not exactly how robert would do it but whatever <laughs> nancy likes it <laughs> but along with the flower arrangement nancy is actually given an invite to a ball that i guess the city of new york is holding i don't know <laughs> yeah and she loves it. She loves how Robert is romantic and spontaneous all of a sudden. Which honestly goes to show that Robert, or at least this version of Robert, is not fit for her. If she felt like she had to pretend to be okay with Robert's non-romantic ways. It's fine if you're not romantic, but I don't think she should have had to mold herself into something Robert would like. I think she would be happier in a relationship where she could express her wants for romance and spontaneity. Yeah, I had the same thought. It did seem like Robert has kind of been projecting his own attitude about love and relationships onto her. So actually, I think this is a good way of showing us like the potential cracks in their relationship that could appear down the line and why Giselle might be a better partner for 
him and why Nancy might be a better partner for Edward. It's actually really interesting that in this movie, our love interests have other love interests and they are not villainized or anything. And it all kind of just works out in the whole friends. And like it works, like they pull it off. Yeah. Doesn't always work out so neatly in real life. But then I'm also like, it's really nice to see the ex-girlfriend not being demonized and having her own fulfilling relationship. So yeah, I, I think it works. Yeah, and it's also like just so adult. I was so happy that this movie is about adults. Yeah, adults who behave like adults too. Yeah. So while all this has been going on, Edward has been searching for Giselle and Nathaniel has been by his side sabotaging his efforts and also trying to get Giselle to eat one of the poison apples. At this point, they end up getting some rest at a hotel and they stumble onto this soap opera that strikes a chord with Nathaniel. There's a domineering woman who's pushing this guy around and she says something like, how can I love a man who doesn't even like himself? And it prompts Nathaniel to do some serious self-reflecting. It was so refreshing to see an antagonist get an arc. I love how New York's effect on these characters is so consistent because it opens Giselle's eyes and makes her more human. And it does the same to Nathaniel. He starts to see his relationship in a new light. I just love it that New York is a shorthand for becoming more human. And in that sense, the setting serves such an important purpose as well. I also love that this movie touches on so many different kinds of relationships as well and different kinds of love, good and bad, and that we do get a deep dive on one that is, I was gonna say flawed, but it's not that it's flawed, it's straight up bad. Yep. And see Nathaniel dig himself out of that. I think that's so wonderful. I don't want to get too far deep <laughs> discussing Disenchanted again, but compared to a character like Nathaniel, Malvina has no such arc. She has some kind of positive development, but we never really get a good idea of what is motivating her. She seems very territorial about protecting her position in the community, but why? What does it stem from? What does it mean? We're just supposed to assume based on like stereotypes. That means like you're too lazy to make a character. <laughs> yeah, then why make a movie? <laughs> Why did they have to make a movie? Just leave it. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Back to Enchanted. I don't know if we mentioned this whole time, Pip has also been there sabotaging Nathaniel, sabotaging Edward. Well, he tries, but he's basically been held captive. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. He is a chipmunk. He's a little bit powerless against Nathaniel. He's a little bit little. Yeah, little. But he escapes, basically. And actually, he goes to Giselle, he finds her at this Italian restaurant where Giselle is having dinner with Robert and Morgan. Giselle and Robert bond further over dinner. Yeah, we find out more about Robert's past and Morgan's mother. And firstly, we learn more about why Robert is the way he is. There's a reason as to why he's so extremely cynical and why he has this extreme perception of love and happily ever after. Robert says something to the effect of he woke up to reality when Morgan's mother left. And I just really like how 
the phrase wake up has a completely opposite meaning in real life than it would in a fairy tale world. Think of Sleeping Beauty. Right. Yeah, I also like how it mirrors what is happening to these cartoon characters. They are literally waking up in a reality suddenly. Their humanity is slowly waking up. On top of that, he and Giselle are also becoming closer because he tells her initially that he doesn't really talk about this stuff. And so it's like he has a real friend for the first time in a long time. And I love also that they took the time to build this relationship so that it's realistic that he would be opening up to her at this point. Yeah, basically Morgan's mom left them. And for one, it's another one where in this world, in New York, love ends and Giselle has to contend with that. Often in movies and stories, it's always that the previous woman passed and that's why they are allowed to move on or whatever. And it's to make it easier, right? Because then, then you don't have to deal with the fact that this character can love somebody else after loving that first person or whatever. I don't know. I just like that the mom left. I think it's so fitting. Yeah, it ties in well with the theme of motherhood as well because once she ends up with Robert, she's going to be Morgan's stepmom. <laughs> Not if Robert has anything to say about it. <laughs> yeah, but there's this whole secondary thread about motherhood, which is more deeply explored, or at least there is an attempt to explore <laughs> in the second movie, but it's present in this movie as well. So the fact that Morgan's biological mother chose to leave and Giselle chooses to stay brings up some interesting ideas about what it means to be a mother. It's actually really interesting because all we see in this movie are stepmothers. You're right. I actually adore that. It's so good. Nathaniel also shows up at the dinner and tries to feed her an apple martini made of the poisoned apple and Pip pops up to knock it out of her hand. Following this, because he fails in a second attempt, the queen reprimands him and he's drinking as this happens and you see that he's kind of broken up about this and presumably also because he's reflecting on his relationship with the queen. It's like the thing where, you know, you drink and break down when you're going through a rough patch in your relationship, but like apply to this and it's great. Yeah. He's like talking into his drink as well, like you might do when you're intoxicated, but he's actually talking to someone in his drink. <laughs> Exactly. This is also where the queen tells him that there's a limited number of poisoned apples. That goes to show that power in Andalusia isn't unlimited. So a big thing that I don't understand in Disenchanted is why Melvina has magic and not only just regular magic but she seems to be infinitely powerful like in the final battle she fights against Giselle so effortlessly and with so much power and like I don't know where she's getting this from and in a similar vein the Andalusian magic wand also seems to grant infinite wishes because Giselle yeah. is all like I wish I wish I wish I wish and all her problems just <laughs> disappear into thin air it's such a cop-out because magic is basically limitless in this movie and they can basically make anything happen. It's also like, why is their fairy tale world suddenly full of magic? Andalusia was never a magical place. The queen had magic and a very finite power at that. But in Disenchanted, the first morning when they're making breakfast, suddenly like the broom is sweeping on its own. The percolator is making coffee on its own. It's like, Andalasia isn't magic. <laughs> I'll tell you why. It's because they wanted to reference Beauty and the Beast. I'm guessing. It didn't have anything to do with continuity with what we had seen before. They just wanted to do it. There was a 
fairy also in the second movie telling Morgan about, oh, all our magic is going and Andalusia's gonna disappear. Like, Andalusia's existence hinged on the existence of magic. And there were no fairies in the first movie. I was like, where is this coming from? Have you Are you lost on your way to a Barbie movie? <laughs> <laughs> so that evening, Giselle tucks Morgan into bed and we get this really sweet moment and she's telling her these stories from Andalusia while Robert <laughs> watches them fondly from a distance. Oh, it's so sweet. I love it. But yeah, I also love that Robert is specifically overhearing her tell Giselle fairy tales because he doesn't encourage them. But I like that he realizes how happy it makes Morgan and he's so fond of Giselle for bringing that into Morgan's life. They have a really interesting conversation following this where Robert finally confronts Giselle and is like, do you believe all of that? Or... <laughs> Basically, it's kind of implied during the conversation that he thinks she and Edward broke up or like something happened that sent her into this breakdown. <laughs> and he talks about like, it's okay to be disappointed by your partner, namely Edward. And, you know, he's saying all of this because he lives in a world where that's his everyday, you know, being a divorce lawyer, but also because of his own experiences with his ex. And I think that's really interesting, but also like really realistic. Giselle keeps insisting that Edward's gonna find me and it's like you say it enough times and it sounds like you're trying to convince yourself you know yeah he's found an explanation that makes the most sense to him because of course we can't expect him to believe that she's from a cartoon <laughs> <laughs> yeah while he is confronting her it seems like it's coming from a good place like, yeah he wants to help he wants to help yeah exactly it's so sweet they are also becoming such good friends is the thing and this is present later on when we're dealing with their respective partners as well they are so supportive of each other and each other's relationships and each other's desires for those relationships it's so good but this actually leads into a fight because Giselle is insisting that Edward will come for her and this is one of the first negative human emotions that she has she's actually so excited about having this new feeling this anger that she's back to being all giddy over it and they have a moment and almost kiss before Robert walks away and Giselle has this wonder on her face as she watches him walk away because it's the first time that she is feeling real attraction that can actually grow into love and it completely takes her in and takes her back because she's realizing that she's never felt like this before it's a big day for her experiencing <laughs> two whole new emotions and i suppose it's the first time she's experienced that attraction not followed up by immediate proclamation yeah. of love and marriage <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this is the first time she's probably feeling that and has to hold herself back she sees robert hold himself yeah. back and not express it and not act on it so that must be jarring for her as well like you are literally watching with your own eyes somebody become a human being and that's why the next morning when edward shows up they already don't connect at all because this is the moment when she becomes fully human yeah he starts singing true love's kiss but she doesn't reciprocate i also love that she doesn't chime into the song and she doesn't realize it until robert points it out they're already on such different pages at this point they're not speaking the same language anymore and even giselle is surprised and disappointed when she realizes she isn't singing along she's starting to realize this isn't what she wants anymore again it's 
like it's not an active choice the same way acting like a cartoon character wasn't really a choice it's almost like she doesn't realize that that part of her is missing until someone points it out and she realizes it's not really a part of her anymore her identity is fundamentally shifted she asks him if they can go on a date which she's learned about from robert and it's really cute because he's on the sidelines encouraging her <laughs> like it's like friends <laughs> ask him ask him <laughs> well they walk around new york i guess <laughs> but they discover that they don't have much in common or much to talk about on the date and giselle is actually pretty reluctant to go back to Andalasia when that time comes. And she stalls and ends up saying that they should go to the ball. And I actually really like this moment where Edward is aware that Giselle is stalling, that she's become fond of this world. I also want to talk about how Edward isn't quite affected by New York and by this world because he isn't interacting with the world. He talks to other people, but only like as a king, as a prince. And he's not really like going around getting to know people and getting to know himself as a person. And so it makes complete sense to me that he's not as affected. I guess the only time he starts to is with Nancy. For, yeah, for like two seconds. Yeah, and then they immediately go back to Andalusia. This is his habit. Instead of falling off of things, he just picks up women and immediately marries them. <laughs> or tries to. You want to go back to my place? It's a whole different connotation <laughs> for him. <laughs> but because Giselle is going to go to the ball, she needs a dress. Yeah, <laughs> some shoes. So she goes to Morgan, who uses her father's credit card <laughs> meant for emergencies to go shopping. And they... Go shopping. <laughs> they buy a bunch of stuff. They do not hold back. <laughs> but yeah, the shopping spree culminates in... Like we talked about Morgan and Giselle bonding at the salon while they're getting dolled up. It's just so sweet. They do such a good job at building the relationship in all the little moments. There's something about Giselle's innocence that makes her and Morgan connect even easier. Like Giselle talks to Morgan as an equal and it does a lot to build their relationship. Both of them still haven't been disillusioned by the realities of the world. Yeah. I guess in Giselle, Morgan finds what she has been missing in her dad, which is the ability to share in something magical. Whimsy. Yeah, exactly. Giselle just kind of balances out that end of the scale that Robert can't really manage to because of his own past. And in Disenchanted, the concept had so much promise. I really liked the idea of building on Giselle and Morgan's relationship, but I think they fumbled it really badly. Yeah, it's so frustrating in so many ways. But like, also, I just, whatever, I don't, fuck off. <laughs> Back to Enchanted. <laughs> yeah she ends up actually getting a pretty modern dress for a ball that <laughs> is Edwardian themed or kings and queens it said which actually makes a lot of sense like how would morgan know you know true it also makes sense for the story that she is now fully a modern human <laughs> and it makes her stand out in this world and not just as in like physically stand out i mean like we understand through this visual that she no longer fits in a place like andalasia even if she goes back this will be how it is she's no longer of andalasia you're right that would have been such a good thread for disenchanted 
she tries to use the wishing thing and it fails and it's like because she's no longer a daughter of Antonisha like Morgan is like trying to deal with this and Giselle's like kid neither am I and it's because I chose you Morgan like I chose to stay here with you and your father and that's the best thing I ever did and Morgan's like oh that's kind of sweet and then they wake up that would have been so sweet yeah but speaking of Giselle's dress for the ball in Enchanted, I mean, it's a pretty obvious progression throughout the movie how her outfits become less and less flamboyant as time goes by. Even her hair. But we never see this kind of thoughtfulness in the second movie. Giselle's outfits especially seemed so generic to me, like they literally walked into the nearest store and just picked out a couple things they thought moms would wear and then just... <laughs> That was it. Yeah. Yeah, when she becomes evil, she sort of dresses more dramatically. But beyond that, the outfits that she wears throughout most of the movie, they're very bland. It does upset me that there is such a high potential for people or for the creators or whatever to just say, like, people just don't like it because they just don't like that not everything is perfect in the sequel. And it's like, no, it's because it's a bad movie. I feel like so many, like, sequels or, like, new seasons or, like, reboots or whatever when they get criticized they're always like oh you just don't like that your favorite characters aren't like happy what? and it's like no we want more evil <laughs> someone in the comments of the modern girls video suggested that robert should also have been evil i love that idea they robbed us of truly evil giselle because yeah. most of the time she was battling her good side and so we were getting this very i suppose it's meant to be comedic but it was kind of just Annoying, annoying yeah like a bit jarring i don't know i just wanted her to just be evil and cut Malvina out of it her character was superfluous i don't want to blame amy adams but i don't think even amy adams's amazing acting saved it yeah i i loved it when she was just being evil i thought she was doing an amazing job there but back in Enchanted, yes. <laughs> Giselle and Edward arrive at the ball and basically meet up with Robert and Nancy. Yeah, the people at the ball do this weird thing where they ask attendees <laughs> to dance with someone that they did not go to the ball with. So in a very convenient turn of events, Giselle and Robert end up dancing together while Nancy and Edward dance. I think it is so funny. Like the people running that ball is trying to stir shit <laughs> up. <laughs> they want to see some drama. They throw this ball every single year and nothing ever happens. They're like, you know what? This year we're going to play the most romantic song, the slowest dance, and we are going to have people switch partners. <laughs> but yeah, they dance. And they get closer and closer. And then at some point, Robert actually sings along and dedicates his words to her. And he and Giselle are now speaking the same language. So they're on the same page. My favorite part actually is when they do part and Nancy and Robert are dancing together again. And they end the dance and they kiss. And it's a kiss with zero emotion. And they both look at each other and you know it's over. Like, they both know that it's over. And it's so well done. Like, they don't say anything. There's no dialogue. But the direction is amazing. The acting is amazing. It's all conveyed with one look. 
Yeah, they do a great job of conveying all these complex feelings in a very subtle way and in a way that also fits the tone of the movie without coming across as either too cloying or bogging it down too much. I think it's a perfect balance. It's all very economical. They don't do anything nearly as smart in Disenchanted. I can't really think of any examples where I was touched by the depiction of these characters' emotions. Like the climax of the movie where Giselle is basically about to stop existing because of magic stuff and she's telling Morgan how much she loves her and everything. It's supposed to be very impactful and emotional, but honestly, I didn't really feel anything. At that point, I was sobbing, but it was more because I was sobbing over Enchanted, you know, like... <laughs> can't believe they did this to my baby <laughs> i also like what is that scene the background is weird and confusing and ugly are they filming in front of a green screen what is this marvel get the fuck out of there i don't understand what is happening i think they went too over the top with the special effect and also this is in the context of what has happened just before which is that Malvina put a sleeping spell or something on Morgan and then Morgan wakes up less than two minutes later it's like she took a very short nap it was <laughs> so anticlimactic yeah I guess the sleeping curse is supposed to be sleeping beauty thing they just shoehorned it in there it was so unnecessary there was so much going on just plot wise and as you mentioned the weird background and the effects in general there's Nancy looking off into the distance at this hazy vision of Edward in Andalasia. Oh my god, what is that scene? So Nancy like basically sits down and rests like three feet away from the screen where Edward is like reaching out to her and I'm like, Nancy, help him! <laughs> and she's just like sitting there like, oh no. And I'm like, what are you doing? And then I realize that it's like FaceTime, it's not a portal. I also hate how they bring in like, Andalasia is crumbling because of this. You have to save an entire land. Like, you're not a superhero. Enchanted <laughs> was about the interpersonal lives of all these characters. And it's literally a character-driven story. Here you gotta save Andalasia. Like, what is this? <laughs> Okay, before our heads explode, let's go back to Enchanted. <laughs> well, the queen shows up because she has appeared in New York in all her glory and it's this bombastic scene and I love it. I love her character design. I love her costume. I love her look. Susan Sarandon is an amazing queen. And this also happens as Nathaniel is contending with his crumbling belief and devotion to the queen. He is called into like radio stations to ask for advice and he's a completely different man now. And yeah, the queen shows up by Giselle's side as Edward is away. Yeah, disguised again like she was in the beginning of the movie and offers Giselle the last poisoned apple. And the way she convinces her to bite into it is she tells Giselle that it will make all of these painful memories of Robert disappear. That's basically why she takes it, is because she wants to forget the pain of unrequited love. And I think it's so human. And it's like, especially the reaction of someone 
who is very inexperienced, I think, to want to get rid of the pain instead of experiencing it and knowing that one day it will fade. What I don't like is that this actually sets up the basis for the second movie if they wanted to go with the memories are important route. She should eat the apple in the second one. Even when they're introducing the concept in the second movie and going on about how important memories are, they could have tied it to this moment. Something like, once I made a mistake of trying to erase my memories, but now I understand how important they are. If it had been real, I would have lost all of you. I would have lost this life and whatever. Something to that effect. At least it's less airy-fairy. Yeah, it's grounded in something. Yeah. Yeah, I like this scene in Enchanted with the Queen as well. And like you said, it's so fitting for Giselle because she has never felt this pain before. Giselle's a baby, you know? In terms of experience, yeah. Yeah, she's experiencing everything for the first time. And also in the context of Giselle discovering that you can love someone but still be separated from them. To her, this is forever and ever the same way that it was for those clients at Robert's office. So for her, it's like she's going to be experiencing this pain for the rest of eternity. (laughs) Oh my god, you're right. She's still learning that this is part of life, right? Pain is part of life. And like you said, she doesn't know that this pain will fade, but also she doesn't know that even with the pain, happiness will come again. Even if this is forever and ever, goodbye to Robert, she will fall in love again with somebody else, possibly. Like it's not out of the question. But yeah, she bites into the apple and the apple kind of falls out of her hand and rolls across the dance floor. And I actually love this. It's so like, <laughs> so tale esque Yeah, the movie leans so perfectly into the fairy tale esque elements throughout that this doesn't feel out of place. So Giselle has collapsed at this point and the queen tries to carry her off but edward stops her they're calling out for help and these guys just suddenly show up with like a chase lounge (laughs) (laughs) clearly this has happened before and so this time they were prepared in case someone has a dramatic collapse by poisoned apple What I find actually really funny is that later on we find out that the audience think that it's a show <laughs> put on by the ball. And I'd like to think that the people carrying in the chase lounge are part of the show. So they think that these are the actors they're supposed to assist. <laughs> and there are like actual actors in the wings like, what do we do? That's supposed to be our, <laughs> our stage. But yeah, actually Nathaniel shows up and tells Edward that this was all the Queen's doing. Robert realizes that the only way to save her is true love's kiss, or at least he knows that it is very powerful and so is likely to save her. Edward tries and fails. She doesn't wake up. (laughs) Ouch. And I love that Edward is the one who comes up with the solution that Robert should kiss her. I just love the dynamic between all of these four players. They know what's going on and like they are still working their way through it. But push comes to shove. They can dig deep inside and come up with with a solution because it's all there. And Robert at first is reluctant but nancy even tells him to go for it so he does and she does wake up so everything's great except the evil queen is still there (laughs) yes so the queen is angered 
clearly. And she is building up to this climax and she walks backwards towards the middle of the ballroom. And there is this shot going backwards of all of our heroes on the steps. And it's so well, like, blocked. Everyone is on different levels and it is slightly tilted and it's angled and it's a beautiful shot. It's so striking. And so now this is her big climax and the queen turns into a giant dragon. And she actually grabs Robert, flies out the window and holds him hostage. And this is where we see Giselle's moment of heroism. She grabs a sword and she goes after them to rescue Robert. She leaves one of her high-heeled shoes behind as she's climbing out the window. I mean, her losing her shoe because she's chasing after the dragon to save her true love is a great subversion of the trope as we know it. That is! I also like that the queen is like trying to attack Giselle, right? And Robert does that thing where he's like, over my dead body. And then she's like, okay. And then it's not like, and then it's a duel between her and Robert. It's like, she just takes him out. (laughs) Yeah. They wholeheartedly subvert this trope because Giselle is out there with her tiny little sword, (laughs) tiny in proportion to the dragon. And she actually throws it to pin Robert in place the same way that in the first scene, Edward threw the sword to get the ogre. So it's like she's completely adopting that role of hero. And it makes sense. She had learned from Edward. And it also makes sense because Giselle's the one who is more accustomed to these situations with dragons and trolls and monsters. Whereas Robert wouldn't know shit about fighting her. <laughs> so it's like, it's both a subversion, but also not one that like doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's not like they're trying to virtue signal of, about, you know, strong women and whatever. It makes sense for the character. You're right. Not to discount any characters. So I have to mention that Pip does help. Yeah. He does his part. <laughs> But yeah, this time Robert is the one who falls and Giselle doesn't quite catch him. He didn't catch her either. (laughs) It's just revenge. Yeah, I guess just like Robert, she just breaks his fall. (laughs) But yeah, the queen falls to her death (laughs) on the streets of New York. Yep. And they live happily ever after. Pretty much. What sequel? (laughs) (laughs) This is followed by an epilogue showing all of their endings without dialogue. Nancy finds Giselle's shoe and goes to Andalusia with Edward. And here's the thing. I liked this in Enchanted. I grow to hate it in Disenchanted. I like it in the short term because we can imagine what it means in the long term. Like, we can imagine they go back to New York. We can imagine whatever the fuck we want. We don't have to think about it. Movie over, go home. In Disenchanted, we are to believe that Nancy stayed in Andalasia and has been living there when the whole point of Enchanted is that it is a cartoon. (laughs) You are losing your humanity by going there. (laughs) This is Jumanji all over again. (laughs) Is she doing this, what, because Robert broke her heart? I don't think that he did. Doesn't seem like she was very happy with him. (laughs) He cheated on her! (laughs) Let it go. (laughs) (laughs) Let it glow. Let it grow. (laughs) It's like... Now I am forced to think about the fact that Nancy chose to live in Andalasia. And it is horrifying. I... uh, uh. (laughs) (laughs) 
so that's how I feel about Andalasian Nancy. Nathaniel also stays in the human world and becomes a writer with models? <laughs> I suppose. They're his um, assistant slash receptionist. <laughs> <laughs> Except he hired two different people for the two different jobs. So he's a more ethical he, He's employer. a better boss than Robert, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Giselle opens a boutique and becomes part of Robert and Morgan's family. Yeah, and they the dance end. around. <laughs> <laughs> In the beginning of the movie, we start off with this fairy tale pop-up book. And by the end, there are scenes from real life in there. So yeah. it's like everything from the movie culminating to form this balanced story where there's elements of reality and elements of fairy tale. It's full circle. Meanwhile, I can't say the same for Disenchanted. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but there was one thing I liked about Disenchanted. Ooh. <laughs> there were glimpses of cleverness. And one of those was during the climax when Robert and Tyson are holding the clock back from chiming to midnight. Oh my god, yes! It was a great subversion of the midnight deadline trope because <laughs> it kind of shows the silliness and arbitrariness of midnight because it's like time goes on in real life but in this world just because the clock doesn't chime midnight the bad thing doesn't happen and they buy themselves more time that was funny I love that so much. It's also like way more in line with Enchanted and clever in the way that like this is a magical problem and they are applying practical solutions to it. The clock isn't simply a visual sign. It is literally the thing that is triggering the spell or whatever. I think it's so funny and cover and just fun it's so playful they use it to build the tension as well which is great but it's just a shame that nothing much else is going on <laughs> to have us invested in the movie it ends so weirdly not weirdly but badly yeah <laughs> it's also like what did the characters learn nothing really robert's arc is that he hates trains <laughs> At first, I thought it was supposed to be about what his life has become, the routine, day in, day out. Like, what is the meaning of this? I can't believe this is what my life has amounted to, which is, like, something a lot of us feel. And then they just turn it into... They literally solve it by, like, he doesn't commute anymore. And, like, the point is it the fucking commute. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very similar thing with Morgan, too. She is worried about her place in the world. It's a very relatable issue, especially when you're that age and you're still figuring out who you are and where you stand in the world. And they resolved it by giving her a boyfriend. <laughs> you know what it is? It's that they don't solve the actual issue. They solve the issue that popped up <laughs> yeah. from the issue. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's this issue in the beginning and they tried to solve it and then it went wrong, Yeah. right? It created the fairy tale world. And then they solved the fairy tale world and then didn't solve the issue that the fairy tale world stemmed from. We're back to square one. I also want to say that in Enchanted, as you mentioned at the beginning, there was a very clear reason why the story was being told. There was a reason it was all happening. But in Disenchanted, we start off with Pip telling his kids a bedtime story and he's apparently told the story a bunch of times but today he decides to tell them what happened after the happily ever after and it's like what prompts yeah, him to do that true. not only that but they start with this for some reason i guess to introduce a bunch of background information to us and then
then at the end, there's not even a conclusion to that thread. They literally just show a shot of Pip's children already asleep, which I don't blame them. This was the most boring story ever. And he just <laughs> sort of closes the book and it's the end. No one learned anything. No one learned in anything in the story. So of course, no one learned anything in that thread either because there's nothing to learn. Trains are bad. <laughs> Trains are bad and get a boyfriend. Those are our absurd conclusions. <laughs> yep, knocked it out of the park. Snack time? <laughs> <laughs> so what snack would we pair with Enchanted? Candied apples. Candied apples for sure. And apple martini. I would pair this movie with like New York street food. That fits well. Or if you're Nancy, like a Andalasian cartoon buffet. <laughs> So, have your opinions changed and would you recommend this movie? Well, Enchanted is a true classic and I think it's timeless. It still retains that freshness and wittiness. So I definitely recommend Enchanted. When it comes to Disenchanted, I was very hopeful because the concept sounded really good. But I was also wary because recent sequels and reboots and everything haven't really been on par with the classics. And I think this is no exception, unfortunately. It's going to sound like a weird comparison, but it kind of reminded me of the Scream sequels in that they were just too enamored with their own mythology and too preoccupied with showing off about their previous successes to focus on what is actually important which is telling a good story. I don't think Disenchanted is worth a watch especially if you're a fan of Enchanted honestly. I agree with everything you said. I've always adored Enchanted. I still do. I also was always so aware of how good it is. The writing is impeccable. The music is impeccable. The acting is impeccable. The directing is impeccable. Like, there is no weak spots. And nothing feels like it's just there for the sake of it. I think that's the main problem with Disenchanted is that nothing feels thoughtful. Yeah. Instead of focusing on the genre and thinking of clever ways to reinvent it and rework it they were too focused on their own universe the strengths of enchanted lie in them looking at the previous canon and picking out parts that they wanted to critique as well as honor whereas here there doesn't seem like there's the same kind of intention I also don't recommend Disenchanted. Obviously, I recommend Enchanted. I don't recommend Disenchanted. Granted, I find it hard to enjoy bad movies. So it's not like I would recommend anyone watch a bad movie in the background because I don't usually recommend that. But I don't think this is even worth that kind of a watch. If you want to see Amy Adams in a good movie, watch Enchanted. Watch Enchanted, yeah. <laughs> anyway, don't watch Disenchanted. Watch Enchanted twice. <laughs> That's our episode for Enchanted. If you have any suggestions for movies we should discuss on the podcast, send them in at graveyard underscore slot on Twitter and Instagram or email us at thegraveyardslot at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of The Graveyard Slot. <laughs>